Hello, my name is uh, Callum Duncan. I'm a consultant neurologist with a headache interest in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. With me today are Dr. Philip Holland, Dr. Manjit Mathru, and Dr. Alok Tayagi. This is a JNP podcast in association with the Association of British Neurologists meeting. We'll all just uh, introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Dr. Philip Holland um, at the University of Edinburgh, specialist interest in pathophysiology of headache from a basic science side of things. I am Dr. Manjit Mathuru. I am a senior lecturer and a consultant neurologist at the Institute of Neurology and the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, Queen Square, London. Hi, I'm uh, uh, Dr. Alok uh, Tiagi. I'm a consultant neurologist at the Institute of Neurological Sciences, Southern General Hospital in Glasgow, and I have a, a specialist interest in headache disorders. Dr. Holland, you um, discuss the advances in the pathophysiology of cluster headache. I'd be grateful if you could um, summarise the key findings from your talk. Yes, so we're very interested in the underlying pathophysiology of the entire spectrum of primary headache disorders, but we had special interest on cluster headache here. We looked at this in relation to the trigeminal vascular system. That is the pain processing system that's involved in all primary headache diseases. The cranial innervation of the dura mater and the blood vessels projecting via the trigeminal ganglion to the trigeminal nucleus caudalis and the spinal cord. And then the ascending pain pathways up to the higher order brain structures such as the thalamus and the cortex for processing. But we also focused on pathways involved in the descending inhibitory modulation arising from the cortex through the hypothalamus and down through the classical pain modulatory brainstem structures. And one key focus here was on the hypothalamus and specific neuropeptides within the hypothalamus called the rexins. Um, we know the hypothalamus is involved in circadian rhythms and of course this is a key feature of cluster headache. And we were able to show in ex- experimental models that the orexinergic peptides can modulate both pro- and anti-nociceptive responses at the level of the spinal cord. So can both heighten pain perception and reduce it in the experimental models and be influenced by circadian rhythms and sleep patterns. So we think this is a very novel understanding in the pathophysiology of cluster headache and indeed there is some orexin compounds now in phase 2 clinical trials and we'll get the information from that soon. The second main component was focusing on the trigeminal autonomic reflex This is the reflex parasympathetic activation in response to activation of the trigeminal vascular system. And up until recently, models for cluster headache have been limited, but we've recently developed this new model. And with the model, what we can see is that by activating directly these parasympathetic fibres, we can induce cranial autonomic features such as lacrimation, but also rebound activation of the trigeminal vascular system. And when we look at this from a pharmacological profile, which I'm sure we'll discuss later on in this podcast, you can see that the classic or new and emerging treatments for cluster headache are effective in this system. That is oxygen and other treatments there. And classic treatments that would be more associated with migraine and other primary headache disorders aren't effective. So now we're getting a better understanding of the key role of the hypothalamus and the trigeminal autonomic rebound activation in cluster headache and this can only lead to great advances in the future. Thank you very much. Dr Mathur, you um, gave us an update on the medical and surgical management of migraine and cluster headache. I wonder if you could start off by talking about migraine and its acute preventative treatment and perhaps also some of the treatments that might be emerging in the near future. 
So with regard to acute treatment of migraine, NICE has recently reviewed the data on the available treatments. So the treatments that are generally used include paracetamol, anti-inflammatories, opiates, ergots, and triptans. When NICE carried out the review, what they identified is that the best treatment in terms of efficacy and also cost-effectiveness, in fact, is a combination of a triptan with either paracetamol or an anti-inflammatory. And NICE's recommendation, in fact, is that that is what we should offer the patients, which is a bit different from what most practicing neurologists do. We, in the main, have used a a step-up approach, which is to start off with the milder agents such as paracetamol and anti-inflammatories and then step up to the triptans. In fact, NICE's recommendation is turning that around and is uh, uh, advising us to start with the most effective and if necessary then step down or to start with monotherapy only when there's a patient preference to do so. NICE also goes on to make the recommendation that uh, we should consider using anti-emetics with uh, whatever abortive treatments we use. And there's a large body of evidence that actually supports that, that uh, you can improve the efficacy of whatever acute treatment you use by using antiemetics. The other message that NICE puts out is that uh, we should avoid using ergots, uh, largely because their side effect profile is uh, quite poor, and also there's an inconsistent efficacy with these agents. It also makes a recommendation that we should not be using opiates routinely in patients with migraine. And the main basis for that, and in fact also for the ergots, is that both ergots and the opiates do make patients prone to medication overuse headache. So that is the main thrust of uh, the message with regard to the acute treatments of migraine. With regard to preventive treatments, there are some general principles one needs to be aware of. In the main, preventive treatments need to be considered when patients have high frequency of headaches. As a general guide, we often recommend that we should consider preventive treatments in patients who've got five or more headache days in a month. It's important to point out that most of the preventive treatments available only work if you have patients on an optimum dose. So using suboptimal doses is often one of the reasons that patients don't respond to these treatments. And the third point to be aware about in terms of general principles is that uh, there is often a lag of two to three months before a beneficial effect of a preventive treatment emerges. Once one has considered those general principles, then in terms of the agents that one can use, uh, again, NICE reviewed this, and uh, what they came out with first-line agents is uh, the use of either topiramate or propranolol, which is where most of the evidence is, and as a second-line agent, they've recommended carbapentin. However, it is generally acknowledged that the tricyclic antidepressants, in particular amitriptyline, the serotonin modulators, pisotifen, and sodium valproate can all be useful agents. Clinical evidence and anecdote clearly is uh, supportive of that, but all the evidence that we have is largely on an open-label basis. I should also add that even though NICE made the recommendation that uh, carbapentin can be used, since the NICE guideline came out, there has been a publication of a trial, a randomized controlled parallel group trial, that showed that carbapentin, in fact, is not useful uh, and is not effective in the management of migraine. So I suspect that the guideline will change on that front. The one thing that is new in the management of patients with chronic migraine 
is the use of Botox. Two very large studies, the PREEM studies, looked at the use of Botox in 1,400 patients with chronic migraine. And what these studies showed is that approximately 50% of the patients have a 50% improvement, and 25% of the patients have as much as a 75% improvement in their headaches. NICE again has reviewed this as part of a technology appraisal, and the recommendation they have made is that patients who have chronic migraine, which they defined as patients who have headaches on at least 15 days per month, eight of which satisfy the diagnostic criteria for migraine, should be offered Botox, but they have put in two other caveats. Those two other caveats are these patients should have tried at least three preventive treatments and they should not have medication overuse. For those patients who qualify, NICE has recommended that they should have two cycles of treatment with Botox. And uh, if they have at least a 30% improvement in their headaches, then they can carry on having Botox on a three-monthly basis. If, on the other hand, they do have an excellent response and convert from being chronic to episodic, then the Botox should be stopped at that point. Thank you. Um, do you know I want to comment on the um, uh, management of cluster headache, both acute and preventative treatment, and maybe also comment on whether medication overuse headache is a problem in cluster headache? For the acute treatment of cluster headache, there are various studies that have uh, looked at the use of oxygen and the triptans. High dose fluoride oxygen used at uh, 12 litres per minute, 100% oxygen, has been shown to be beneficial in 80% of patients within 15 minutes. When you look at the subcutaneous formulations of uh, sumatriptan, then uh, what the clinical trials demonstrate is approximately 75% of the patients respond within 15 minutes. In terms of the nasal triptans, the agents that have been used are nasal sumatriptan and nasal zolmitriptan, and the response rates are in the region of 40 to 60%, but at 30 minutes. So it seems that the nasal triptans are less effective and take longer to work the oral triptans were found to be ineffective. So on the basis of this data, NICE has made a recommendation that uh, patients should be offered either high-dose and fluoride oxygen or the triptans. For patients who offer offer triptans, they can use two injections of sumatriptan daily or three of the nasal sprays on a daily basis. And it's important to highlight that in this patient group, we are recommending daily and frequent use of the triptans. A question that is often posed is, are these patients at a risk of developing medication overuse headache? That is not a phenomenon that we generally tend to see in patients with cluster headache unless they also happen to have migraine, which in the main tends to be a smaller group. The vast majority of these patients can use the triptans on a regular basis without risk of medication overuse headache or any anaphylaxis or rebound from uh, the triptans. So that doesn't tend to be an issue. With regard to the preventive treatments, the agent that has a controlled evidence base is verapamil. Verapamil, however, often needs to be used at a relatively high dose of up to 960 milligrams daily. However, we often have the scenario that patients do not respond to verapamil, and that poses a question that what are the other options that we have available? On the basis of open-label evidence, methysergide, lithium, topiramate, carbapentin, sodium valproate, and melatonin can all be useful agents to consider uh, under those circumstances. Thank you. And you went on 
in the end to discuss neuromodulating treatment, particularly surgical neuromodulating treatments. I wonder if you could summarize those for us. Yes. So neuromodulation and primary headaches has a place for patients who prove to be intractable to the medical treatments that have just been mentioned. This is a a relatively common scenario that uh, patients with primary headache syndromes who are highly disabled by the headaches or having headaches on a daily or near daily basis are in a lot of pain and yet uh, have gone through the vast bulk of some of the agents that I've mentioned and have failed to respond. We have three options for these patients. There's occipital nerve stimulation, which involves inserting electrodes over the occipital region, connecting the electrodes up with the battery and uh, stimulating that region. This has been looked at in migraine. There are two clinical trials, the ONSTEM study and a St. Jude medical study. And what these studies show is that 40 to 50% of the patients have a meaningful response to occipital nerve stimulation. NICE has looked at this recently, and there's an uh, interventional procedures guideline uh, which recommends the use of uh, occipital nerve stimulation in this patient group with migraine. Occipital nerve stimulation can also be used in cluster headache. The evidence we have is all open-label. A review of uh, the literature shows that approximately two-thirds of patients with medically intractable cluster headache uh, respond to occipital nerve stimulation. There's currently a controlled trial ongoing, and we look forward to seeing the results of that in due course. What is really exciting in terms of neuromodulation is phenopalatine ganglion stimulation. Philip Holland has just told us about the importance of this phenopalatine ganglion and the trigeminal autonomic system and the pathophysiology of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. On the basis of this, there's been a controlled study looking at the role of phenopalatine ganglion stimulation in cluster headache. And patients had optimum stimulation, suboptimal stimulation, and sham stimulation. And what the clinical trials showed was that approximately 70% of the patients were able to abort the attacks rapidly by turning on a sphenopalatine ganglion stimulation. What was really exciting about this study was that uh, while this study was designed to look at the acute treatment of cluster headache, the investigators in fact found that uh, by using sphenopalatine ganglion stimulation, In an acute setting, they were able to actually dramatically reduce the frequency of the headaches, suggesting that this may actually turn out to be a very useful preventive treatment as well. For patients who have failed all other forms of uh, neuromodulation, then one can consider deep brain stimulation. We know that the hypothalamus is uh, important in the pathophysiology of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. On the basis of that, Patients with cluster headache, medically intractable cluster headache, have had posterior hypothalamic region deep brain stimulators inserted. And a recent review showed that 64% of these patients respond to deep brain stimulation. So this is something that can be considered, but only in patients who have failed all medical treatments and who have had other forms of neuromodulation considered. Uh, And again, NICE have put an interventional procedure guideline out and recommend its use in that patient group. Thank you. Dr. Tiagi, um, you talked to us about new onset chronic daily headaches. Can you explain the concept of new onset chronic daily headaches, please? Thanks very much, uh, Callum. I'm a clinical neurologist, and and I, as you said, talked about the uh, approaches that one could take when assessing new onset chronic daily headache. A new onset is, is a slightly ambiguous term, I think, because it's not as clearly defined 
as a thunderclap headache. But in clinical practice, I think somebody who presents with a headache which is not acute in onset and a headache which is not gradually increasing in frequency to become a chronic headache, I think would be termed as a new onset chronic daily headache. There is also the question of what exactly uh, is a chronic daily headache. So if you have headaches on more than 15 days a month for more than three months, then that is how you define a chronic daily headache. So the answer to your question would be that if a new onset chronic daily headache is a headache present on more than 15 days a month for more than three months, where there isn't a background of increasing frequency of headaches that has result, uh, resulted in a chronic headache syndrome. You then went on to talk about the, the importance of ruling out secondary causes of, of a new onset chronic daily headache. Can you talk a bit about that, please? Yes, um, chronic daily headache as such, the, the commonest causes for it are chronic migraine and chronic tension type headache. However, when you're looking at new onset chronic daily headaches, particularly those that have an abrupt onset, a number of these presentations may actually be because of a secondary headache disorder, which means that there is a cause for the headache syndrome rather than this being a problem with the uh, trigeminal autonomic pathways uh, uh, or the pain pathways as such. And that's why it's important to consider uh, assessment of these patients slightly more carefully. And in particular, one needs to look at conditions that can uh, result in alteration in the CSF dynamics, uh, alterations in CSF pressure uh, and volume. But you can also have some of the other conditions such as arterial dissections or venous sinus thrombosis or rarely giant cell arthritis which can present with a new onset chronic daily headache in the absence of uh, any other neurological symptom or sign. In these patients, what sort of minimum investigations we should be doing? Yeah, that's a difficult one. I think the investigations are guided by the clinical assessment. And I would think that if the clinical assessment of a new onset chronic daily headache does not give you any suggestions of a secondary headache disorder, such as an alteration in the CSF dynamics. So in other words, if you see somebody um, whose headache has an orthostatic element to it or where the headache is precipitated by a valsalva maneuver, then clearly you need to consider further assessment initially with a neuroimaging study and possibly even with the uh, lumbar puncture to look at the CSF opening pressure. Once a secondary cause has been excluded, do you have any advice for people on how to manage a primary nuclear persistent headache? Yeah, I mean, new daily persistent headache, again, it is slightly controversial whether one should use that as a diagnostic term or should that be uh, a syndromic way in which one should use this term itself. But in clinical practice, a new daily persistent headache is diagnosed once you've excluded a secondary cause, as you said. And then you look at the clinical features of the headache. And if the headache has migrainous features, which is the case in the majority of patients who have new new daily persistent headache, then the clinical management has to be as you would manage a chronic migraine. If, on the other hand, a history of migrainous features is not elicited, then possibly the management should be as you would manage the chronic tension-type headache. Thank you, Dr. Taggy, and thank you to Dr. Holland, uh, Dr. Matthew, and Dr. Taggy for taking part in this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.